Let's continue worship with a reading from Acts 2, uh, verses 22 through 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not handed, not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, it's the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many, word, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for remaining standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, I have a conviction that reading the word itself uh, is an act of, of worship. So thank you for that. Welcome. Um, if I don't know you, my name's Chris. I'm lead a teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm happy you're here with us today. It's my joy to welcome you. You caught us in the middle of an ongoing conversation about the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot's been said, but let me just say this. No one, no one comes to a conversation about the Holy Spirit with a blank slate. Nobody does. Christian or not, but especially if you're a Christian, you already have a preloaded set of ideas of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. And depending on what kind of church you grew up in or you're familiar with, um, there are some reservations, uh, to say the least, like at best reservations, at worst piercing judgmental cynicism, right? Uh, when someone starts talking about being filled with the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit or a Holy Ghost outpouring or revival or whatnot, especially if someone starts getting into the more supernatural gifts of the Spirit like healing, right, or tongues or miracles, stuff like that. Because when you say, let's talk about the Holy Spirit, 
Most Christians immediately zoom in to the more supernatural gifts. Um, and whether you know it or not, uh, let me level with you. You have been thoroughly discipled in post-enlightenment, modern scientific thinking, whether you know it or not. Therefore, when the supernatural comes up, any kind of supernatural, paranormal, ghost, anything, right? We are immediately suspicious. Has anyone ever told you God healed them of something? Let's just do this. How many would say, I, I have problems? That's, I'm, anyone? No one's willing to, okay, thank you. All right, thank you. All right, yes. Someone says that to me. I'm like, oh, well, I mean, maybe, you know, or you had like some more caffeine and had some Tylenol and then you felt fine, you know? Um, whether you know it or not, you have been thoroughly discipled in post-enlightenment modernistic understanding of the universe and how the universe works. Everything's explainable now. And if it's not explainable, it soon will be by science. And anything that you can't explain is just science that hasn't been figured out yet, right? As the movies tell us. We are immediately suspicious when anyone whispers anything of supernatural, right? One of the things I've been trying to point out to you is you have to admit some of your reservations when it comes to the supernatural are simply a byproduct of the fact that you came on human history post-18th century, post-industrial revolution, modern. Our reserva your reservations um, are largely because you are a product of your culture, okay? Let's just level with it. Because today, y'all, in less modern, less scientific cultures, they have much less resistance to the supernatural. Anyone ever been in third world countries, right? In some places, West Africa, South Africa, South America today, still have a part of their, a, as a part of their accepted culture, witch doctors or shamans, right? It's just what you do. You go to the witch doctor, he does the spell, mixes the blood with the goats, and everyone walks away, and I think we probably, maybe it works, you know? I don't know, whatever. And... Much of your resistance is just a part of the fact that you're a product of your culture, all right? Just, so just categorize that in your head, okay? Just go ahead and put that on a shelf, open the New Testament, and, and try to cipher through what is my resistance to these things. Anyone ever read Acts and be like, man, here's my life, here's the book of Acts, one of these doesn't match. No one else, just me, right? Read the New Testament, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, any of these books, and you read them and you say, these dudes were plugged into something that I am not plugged into. Should we do that too? Anyone want to fess up to that one? You just read it intellectually speaking. I mean, you can't read the book and be intellectually honest and say, oh, my life looks like that, right? Out, out, out the gates. No, dude, you are confronted with something, friends, when you open the Bible. So most people have a correct association between the Holy Spirit and the supernatural. That's a correct association, friends. If you read the Bible, it's correct. Okay, there is a, there's a connection there between the Holy Spirit falling, being poured out, filling, rushing on. That's the biblical language. That's the biblical language of Holy Spirit. Falling, poured out, rushed upon. I don't, I don't, you, can, you, can, you can read it. It's in there. That's the biblical language, all right? When that happens, supernatural things happen. It's, you can't read the book. You can't read the book and not acknowledge it, guys. What are you going to do with that? That has to con confront you in some ways, or you're not being intellectually honest when you read it. All right, miracles, profound psychological and physical healing, spiritual change, broken in a second that people have been fighting that for years. I got friends today that got that story. Friends today that got that story. I've been fighting with this for years, and in a moment something broke. Had nothing to do with his effort, nothing to do with his strength, nothing to do with it. Yeah, come on, man. 
Like this happens today. Life's transformed in seconds. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's probably just me. I have these nagging personality things. That's how I justify it. I'm like, well, it's just part of my personality. And it's this thing that's like, it cripples me. Like it's debilitating sometimes. Sometimes I can get out of control. Sometimes it just wrecks my life and I spiral out of control. Anyone have those things? It seems to me that when you read the New Testament, it's things like that that the Holy Spirit engages us. It's areas like that, weakness, that God tends to get his hands around us. Not in the areas of his strength. Not where you're strutting your stuff like, you know, no, no, no. In fact, the scripture says he's going to resist the proud. He's going to give grace. areas in this brokenness that I desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit. And many modern, modern people cannot jive with things they cannot explain. Or really, let's be honest, control. So the whole conversation, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. What I hope you're sensing is underneath the surface is not simply my hesitations as a modern person to supernatural. What I, what I hope you're sensing is that this is really about control. It really is about who's in charge of your life and heart and thoughts. That's the crux of the situation. And in my humble opinion, uh, it's why most of us stand on the sidelines and watch. Because we are unable to live a life in which we are engaging in elements and things that feel outside of our control or things that we can explain. We like to have life pegged down, don't we? We would prefer, many of you will prefer a Christianity that is like a dead butterfly pinned to an observation table than a living butterfly. Because you can control that. You can observe it from all the angles. You can get all the details you need. You can start classes about it. You can get a PhD in it. It's dead. Many of us prefer a Christianity that's dead. Something that's inside, inside our control. Something that we can explain and feel good and rational and intelligent about. I'm just going to tell you, it's difficult for me to maintain that while I read the New Testament. It's difficult for me to maintain the idea that I can stay in control and experience the things that I'm reading about and am confronted with, right? But for one reason or another, whether it's discomfort with things you can't explain or control or, or something else, many Christians, in my opinion, make a tragic, horrendous, regrettable, self-defeating mistake, and they throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the Holy Spirit. They see weird things. They have people that tell them weird things. And then they come up with an extremely unbiblical, unhelpful label. Now, you, you probably, we all function with this. And they label churches, they label people, and they say, oh, those are the Holy Spirit types, right? They have the, oh, I know, there's a frothy, experiential, right, fluffy, flaky, right? Holy, you have those guys, you have those guys, you have those churches, those people, right? Everyone knows those people, <laughs> right? Those are, and then you got like, like me, you got Orthodox Bible types, you know? I read the book, you know? I read the book, and the Holy Spirit types, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I can't, always want, they're always wanting to pray about things, you know? They're wanting to experience things, and they're wanting to dance and sing loud and stuff like that, you know? But then, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm intelligent, you know? I'm rational, practical, I read the book, you know, they got, I got my ducks in a row, I don't put up any of that silly stuff, and I'm serious about God, I got a furrow, look at my brow, huh? Serious. Serious about God, right? Turn it down, quit laughing, this is a holy place, right? I mean, I'll just, I'll just tell you right now who I throw my lot in with, but what I'm trying to chip away at is this idea of what I just, that's a false dichotomy. Guys, that's, a fault, that's not the biblical choice you get. You don't get team Bible or team spirit. Team spirit, no. That's, that's not the choices. That's not what you get, guys. It's either all or nothing. And some of us are trying to delineate, we're trying to draw these lines where we can like be rational, intelligent, you know, people. And so, and they, but then, you know, we're going to say, oh, I'm just not going to, dude, I'm just, it's not there. 
The line's not there. That's not your choice as a Christian, right? What we see in the Bible are people fully engaged intellectually. Dude, they didn't turn that junk off. You ever read Romans? <laughs> right? right? Did not turn off the brain. The brain's on, right? Intellectually. Leading the charge into an experience, a living, breathing, powerful experience encounter with the Holy Spirit. It's not either or, it's both and. You don't turn your brain off when you become a Christian. Everyone breathe. Whew. I was worried about that one, right? Do I have to be a dummy to get it? You know, is this part of the deal? No, you don't, dude. You ever read any letter by Paul? Like, you gotta, like, it's like paragraphs without punctuations. Like, you, you gotta diagram them suckers just to understand what he's talking about, right? Like, he had it turned up to 11 intellectually, was a scholar. I mean, just read the thing, right? The guys all in the New Testament quoting Old Testament, they knew it right and left, man. They are sophisticated. The Bible is an extremely sophisticated intellectual book that will require the full extent of your intellect, what you have, to begin to understand and comprehend it. Dude, you got to engage. And at the same time, this guy, Paul, let's just take Paul for example, highly educated, highly educated, right? Arguing for a deeply experiential encounter with the living God. Inviting us over and over and over again. Walk in the Spirit. Be saturated in the Spirit. And it's not just Paul. Dude, the Psalms are going to invite you the same thing, right? Psalms, sophisticated intellectual book. Just the Psalms itself, right? And what are, they, what are they saying? Dude, taste and see that God is good. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about that? Taste and see. That's an invitation for you, right? To digest the goodness of God. He's saying, dude, quit taking other people's word for it and put it in yourself. Pick it up. Put it in your mouth. Chew. Digest. Swallow. Take it in. Taste and see. Like, pull up a chair, man. Quit riding the coattails of other people's faith. Like, pull up a chair yourself. So it's, it's almost like he's daring you. Like, I dare you. See, see if God's good. Taste and see if he's good. I, love, I don't know about you. If someone else tells me something good, I'm like, yeah, well, give me that. Yeah, right? uh, I'll be the judge of that, right? The psalmist, I'm daring you. Judge for yourself. Open it up. Digest it. But the, here's the thing. To do that, you have to open yourself up, don't you? You ever try to eat with a closed mouth? <laughs> no, it's not going to work. You ever try to partake with your guard up? Hmm, it's not going to work. You got to pull up a chair. You got to sit. You got to feast. Open your mouth. I, I'm just not, a, I'm not aware of any food that will jump in your mouth without your permission. Some of you are like, you've never been to Krispy Kreme. Because <laughs> right? right? I, I downed seven of those before I knew what was happening. Pastor clearly ever, never seen the red light on a Krispy Kreme, right? It's interesting that Jesus would call himself the bread of life. If you want him, you can have him. But that entails an openness on your part, doesn't it? It entails a willingness on your part. I just don't think he's going to chew for you. I don't think the bread of life is force-fed, right? My kids are at the stage uh, where they literally refuse to eat. Uh, it kills me. Uh, the first question my son asked me before anything, can I have dessert? No. No, you can't have dessert. You haven't had protein in two weeks. You're living off of carbs and sugar. No. <laughs> Has anyone ever made a meal for their kids and their kids, like, do this thing? Like, push the plate away in front of you? Oh, my gosh. Like, light my fuse. Pastor Chris, get a little, like, right? Like, you're going to eat that or daddy's going to lose it, right? Like, stuff it down. Everyone's crying then, right? 
Um, the good thing about this whole silly thing is God's not like me, you know. He's not like me. Um, you're invited. Look, look at me. Dude, you're invited to eat. You're invited to feast. But he's not going to force feed you, man. He's not like me with my son. Get in your gullet, you know. I made that for you. I'm not making another dinner. <laughs> no, I can't have dessert. Come, find real rest. Isaiah 55, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, that's fine. Come, buy, eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without price. But, dude, to eat, you've got to take it in. It's, it's, it's eating is an experience. Huh? Praise his name. Bless him. I love me a good experience of a nice, tender, rare steak, good drink, right? The entire Bible is full of described and prescribed experiences with the living God. You cannot read it and come to any other conclusion and be intellectually honest, right? So if you have an issue with an exper experiential faith, uh, I just you have an issue with the Bible, right? If you've learned to scorn this kind of, you know, experience seekers, I get that. Like, I totally understand what you're saying. But the Bible is full of people insisting that God can and wants to be experienced and encountered by his people. It's just not a New Testament thing. Dude, Old Testament, what was the tabernacle called? The tent of meeting. God intends, listen to me, God intends to be encountered by you, experienced by you. This is what you were created for, guys. And if your guard is up and you're on the sidelines with your arms crossed thinking, I don't get into that kind of stuff, I guess you, I don't know what to say to you. You're going to have to go back to the book and read it again and ask yourself, is this something alive that I'm invited into or is this just a history lesson? See, many people have an understanding of Christianity that's a history lesson and has no real application or power in their lives, right? The invitation of the entire Bible is to experience God. That's a living thing, guys. That's something you have to open yourself to. It is by essence experience. So what's more is in the New Testament, they insist that it's only by encountering God via the Holy Spirit that you can be transformed. That his Holy Spirit is the means of transformation. So if you're going to let the Bible be your guide, if you're going to let the Bible, which I'm not going to take for granted, most Christians let other Christians be their guide, or God help them, their pastor be their guide, right? But if you're going to let the Bible be your guide, you're going to find Paul, sophisticated, intellectual, highly educated man of rigorous, logical thought, having a life-transforming encounter with the risen living Christ on the road to Damascus, right? His entire world switched upside down, and now all of his sophistication, all of his intellect, all of his wisdom, knowledge, now pleading with you, be saturated with the Spirit. Oh, I love it. Say all of his intellect, all of his logic and power saying, let the Spirit of God dwell inside you over and over and over again. Walk by the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Just arguing with everything he has. You have no shot, no shot at doing this Christian thing without being filled with the Holy Spirit power. It's why we've said, actually, it's because we want to be biblically, theologically sound, rational, intelligent people that forces us to deal with the reality of the experience of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Because right? you can't read the New Testament, like I've said, and maintain any kind of intellectual honesty without acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is the catalyst. Catalyst. Christianity would not exist without the pouring out and continual pouring out of the Holy Spirit active in our lives. You can have a cultural Christianity. 
You can have a community club Christianity. Uh, you can have a social justice Christianity. But you cannot have a biblical Christianity without the experience and living power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That means you saying yes over and over and over again to a living, breathing God who is alive, whose arm's not too short, huh? whose strength has not waned in generations and generations and generations and still intends to do today what you read in Scripture. Do you believe that? Have you read the Bible? Wait, before you say yes, have you read the Bible? Do you believe that God can do the things that you read about? This, look, I, not a, it's not a simple answer. You, you need to think about that. You need to go back and read it and ask yourself, is this something that I think I can in honesty experience here and now. And I think some of you would be surprised when you read it and are confronted with the things that happened in the New Testament. And this is a very important question. I would urge you to, to wrestle with it. So our scripture today that we read, it was after Pentecost. You remember Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out, right? And they are filled. That's the language that a bunch of people, a bunch of, actually it's a backwood country boys start speaking in all these kind of different languages. You ever read Acts 2? It's crazy, right? They, they think they're drunk on cheap wine, like Bud Light. So at... <laughs> At 9 a.m., at 9 a.m., right? So what's the most, like, backwoods? I always do this and I get in trouble because I pick a town someone's from. But, what, like, what's the most backwoods town you can think of? Okay, so it's these boys from this backwoods town acting really strange at 9 a.m. in the morning. And they say, dude, those, those poor country bumpkins are drunk on Bud Light, 9 a.m., right? But what are they doing? These guys, these backwood folk, these Galileans, they're, this country folk, these Galileans are speaking what? They're speaking in different languages. See, in Acts 2, when it says tongues, it's not referring to uh, like the spiritual prayer language that you're going to find in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. It's referring to uh, tongues, like languages. You speak, you know, languages. And these backwood boys, country boys, are speaking in different languages. They didn't know. And here we have at Pentecost all these, uh, the diaspora, the spread it out Jews. They've all come back home. They, they, all these Jews, they have been spread out from exile. And so there's Jews from here, Jews from there, and they're all spread out. And they've grown up in these alien lands speaking other tongues as their mother language. And so here they all come back to, for Pentecost, and they hear in their mother language, their mother tongue. I love that about God. Man, he's always going to speak to you in a way you get it, right? And here they hear these backwood country boys declaring what? Well, it says the wonders of God, the mighty works of God in their native tongue, the language they were raised in. That's, that's the uh, stage of what we read. Now, do you remember Peter? Uh, Peter stands up and he gives the sermon that we read. Who's Peter? Well, oh, well, Peter's the guy um, that denied Jesus. Remember Peter? Three times. Peter is the ashamed one. Peter's the one weeping in the darkness. Peter's the coward. The coward who let the fear of man cause him to betray his most beloved friend. That's Peter. That guy. The one who's weeping bitterly when he betrays his Savior. That's the guy who stands up and gives the first Christian sermon. These dudes were hiding in an upper room. Now, theologians, a lot of people like to point out, dude, how did these country bumpkins like, turn the world upside down. Like, how did these dudes transform? Like, but like a carpenter and 12 nobodies literally transformed history, y'all. Like, how'd they do it? And, the, and so people will point, dude, how'd they get boldness? Like, how'd Peter betray, you know, shameful, coward Peter? How'd he get boldness? 
They'll say, well, you know, it's proof of the resurrection. I totally believe that. I totally believe that, right? Like, dude, these guys, if this was, because what's the accusation? Christianity's made up, dude. It's made up, right? These dudes made this up, and they're just, you know, whatever, trying to control people, and a bunch of white dudes. No white dude, like, was in it. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's the accusation. And they say, oh, but, but listen, it had to happen because these dudes died for Jesus. Like, many, all, almost all of them died, killed martyred for Jesus. Now, would you die for a lie? That's what they say. And they say, that's proof of the resurrection. But I want you to notice, it was not until they were full of the Holy Spirit that anything changed decidedly in the the apostles. They were still hiding in an upper room. They were still terrified. They were still a small minority uh, persecuted sect thinking they killed Jesus. Now they're coming for us. They're hiding in an upper room and they're praying. And actually all of the activity in Acts 1 is inward. They're replacing disciples. They're just trying to figure stuff out. And it's not until the Holy Spirit falls that there is a decided change in the disciples, right? Everything he says in that sermon, did you see what, did you see? Like, you crucified Jesus. (laughs) Dude, bro, people will not come back, man. Like, you need to tell more jokes, you know? (laughs) Like, he, he accuses them of conspiring with lawless men. He calls them a crooked generation. And it says they are cut to the heart. I don't imagine that being a pleasant experience. Cut to the heart, right? And then, and then he says, repent and be baptized, and you will be fulfilled with the Holy Spirit. Dude, that, that's a gutsy sermon, man. I don't, know, I don't know if I'd preach that. It's not until the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit that you see this kind of gutsy, crazy lifestyle they begin to develop, right? And in fact, right, they are standing before powers and authorities that could, and for some of them will, have them killed, right? And they display a kind of crazy courage. In fact, the way that Jesus described the, the, the experience of the Holy Spirit, he described it as being clothed with power. I like that. What you wearing? Power, right? Right? And it's not... I love that. It's not until this happens, they go from inward to outward. Hmm? It's not until this happens, they go from holy huddle to like holy hand grenade. Right? Right? They go from hiding in a room to preaching to the masses, from licking their wounds now to inflicting wounds on the enemy. Right? Why? Because they went to a conference, read a book, pumped themselves up? No. In fact, it had nothing to do with them or their efforts at all. It is not what they did. It is what was done to them. God filled them. He he filled them. God acted. His kingdom power did the work. His kingdom power did the work, yeah? And and all of a sudden, fearless. Like, fearless. In fact, two, two chapters later, they're arrested for healing a dude, right? Love that, right? And who's arresting them? It's the religious guys. It's me, right? You, you can't do that around here, right? And after they're arrested, they're brought to the leaders. And the, the leaders, so, you know, pastors, this is it. That's, that's who they are. the religious leaders. They say, hey, listen, shut up about Jesus. Stop, stop talking. And they, and it says in 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, Peter, ashamed, weeping bitterly, Peter, right? They perceived these boys are backwood rednecks, uneducated common men, and they were astonished. Okay, I just described to you the way Christianity took over the world. A bunch of uneducated, common, normal, diaper-changing, dishes-washing, grass-cutting, blue-collar, white-collar, nobodies, 
being filled with the Holy Spirit and are transformed from cowards into lions. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got pockets of cowardice in my life. I've got areas of my life where I am meek, not in a good way, in a bad way, like, like a coward. I've got things that I should deal with that I'm not. I've got things I should say that I'm not because I'm afraid. What's going to happen? What if they reject me? What if I lose a friend? I can't do the thing I feel God calling me to because, man, what if it goes south? I'm afraid. I need the Holy Spirit desperately. And if you're like, well, you're a pastor. I'm not talking about right now, dude. I'm not, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about when I go home. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like I'm talking about when I pull up to my house and I'm wrestling with the intellectual fight that I can check out emotionally right now because I'm tired. And I'm re- you ever anyone do that? You pull in the car, you pull in the carport and like you're just like <laughs> okay. And if and if you can't relate to that, it's because you don't have young kids. All right? I, like, I love what we do here. I love it. I enjoy it. This is not the moment I'm desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, I can, it's, I'm, re- I'm basically reading to you, okay? Like, the moment that I am so needy for the Holy Spirit is, is tomorrow. That's when I need courage. That's when I need power. And all I want to point out to you is that after Pentecost, the, the disciple. this is two things that happen after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes and fills and all this kind of thing, right? People either get brave or people get saved. See, a lot of people like to think that Pentecost, a lot of charismatic, you know, they'll, they'll, they associate tongues with Holy Spirit, right? They say, well, you can't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues. Uh, that's just not true. Uh, that's not true because in the Bible, several places in the Acts, let me see, I have it down here. I've got way off my notes here. Um, I don't know where it's at. I'm, I'm, oh, here we go, here we go. Okay, several, sorry, I just kept scrolling. Um. Acts 4, when the Holy Spirit fills them, uh, doesn't mention tongues. Acts 8 in Samaria does not mention tongues. Now, Acts 19 and Acts 10, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles in Caesarea and Ephesus. Yeah, they speak in tongues. But in Acts 9, when Saul, when Ananias prays for the Holy Spirit to come on Saul, do you know what happens to Saul? He doesn't get tongues. He gets vision. Scales falls from his eyes. So so that's just not true. That's That's not a biblical. In fact, you can't really find any biblical paradigm that every time something happens. That when the Holy Spirit falls, God, God, I don't think God wants you to, right? But what I do notice when I read the Bible is people either get brave or they get saved. P- salvation, ha- that's the pattern I see. John Wimber points out in Power Evangelism that every time the Holy Spirit falls, either his followers are filled with boldness to preach the gospel or the lost are brought in to experience the power of the gospel. In other words, right, when he falls, either people get saved or get brave. How do you know if the Holy Spirit is working, filling? Well, Christians are empowered. This is how you know. Christians are empowered to go to the highways and the byways and proclaim with all boldness the beauties of Christ. And outsiders are brought in to delight in the beauties of Christ. So at Pentecost, we see Jesus' followers being filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately it results in what? Massive salvation. 3,000 people get saved and we begin to see a pattern, right? The power and filling of the Holy Spirit is not simply an experience for you. It is that. But it's more than that. When I look at Scripture, I get the sense that the continued filling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is to sweep you up into the river of God. And where does water flow? To the lowest places. Lowest places. Water comes from the mountains, flows to the dry, dead places. And what does it do everywhere it flows? It brings life. God 
longs for you not only to experience and taste and see his goodness for your own heart, but to be now a causeway, an avenue by which he extends his life and peace and power to those around you. You ever seen a river going through a valley coming from the mountains, right? And maybe like I thought of Zion National Park. Anyone ever been in Zion? Beautiful National Park. A lot of all this red rock and stuff like that. And there's this valley going through the middle of it. And it's just lush, green, beautiful, almost in the middle of the desert. Everywhere water goes, it refreshes. It brings life, right? And God intends for you not only to say yes to the indwelling of his Holy Spirit here and now, but for you now to be an agent of invitation. Everyone say that together. Agent of invitation. Oh, we did that. That's a very great job. I've never done that before. That was great. An outpost, an outpost of his kingdom. An outpost. You know what an outpost is? An enemy-occupied territory. You are to be an outpost of the kingdom power of God in enemy-occupied territory, right? For God who said that light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We aren't the power And it's not just for us. It's to show something. And what does it show? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Love that sentence. Just marinate on that sentence for a year, right? His Holy Spirit fills us so that we might know and declare that God is the highest pleasure and greatest good known to man. That in Christ and in Christ alone, the crucified and risen one now has the keys to death and hell and authority over every other power. When we are filled with this Holy Spirit, we begin to see that God is not stingy. With his power, he gives it. God is the only instance in which ultimate power does not ultimately corrupt. He does not seek power for his own sake. He is power and invites you to partake in his divine nature. At least that's what the New Testament says. His power, guys, the power of the Holy Spirit that is on offer today is like a river. Some might call it living water, right? Flowing from within. And what happens when water stagnates? What happens when it's hoarded and stays in one place too long? It's called a cesspool. It's the definition of disgusting. Mosquitoes, rot, mud, swamp. But, oh, dude, flowing water? Oh, man, water that's like rushing from the mountains to the dry valleys, give life to everything, plants, animals, trees, humans. Everyone's refreshed, man. It's interesting. Let me tell you this story as we end. It's interesting. John Wimber, who's the founder of the vineyard, um, had been praying asking, begging God to do the stuff he saw in the New Testament. Very interesting story, this guy. Uh, Basically, he he was uh, preaching what was in the Bible and was just hitting these supernatural things and was pulling back. And and this is so interesting. God, God, he felt like God said to him, listen, stop preaching your experience. Preach the Bible. And what that led him to was begging God, praying over, God, do the stuff you did, man. Like, show us that you're still alive. Like, heal somebody. Man, like, do something. Like, say, like, redeem. And he's, they're begging for just years. He said people were leaving the church, right? And the first time he saw a miracle, a woman was made well before his eyes. It was like crazy, right? Got out of bed, was good, started cleaning the house. It was insane. He says he walks out of the house dumbfounded because he, he realized he did not believe that God could do that. Right? He said, he said his prayer was the most unimpressive prayer ever. Like, 
this guy calls him. He says, dude, my wife's sick. My wife's sick. I have to go to work today. It's my first day of work. If I don't go to work, I'm going to lose a job. You have to come. You got to come pray for my wife. And he, he's on the phone. He's like, God, what have you got me into now? You know, these guys believe this stuff, right? And, and he goes and he, he starts, he, 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 he actually, he turns to the guy who had called him and he says, he starts to explain why people don't get healed all the time. But he, he like kind of prayed for the, he doesn't even remember what he said. He turns to start explaining, listen, people don't always, you know, we pray. And he sees the guy is not looking at him anymore because his wife had got out of bed and was making the bed, right? So he, he walks out of the house dumbstruck. So even now, I just want you to recognize this, this skepticism that's rising in your heart right now. Just, just be sensitive to that, okay? So he, he walks out of the house, and, and he's, he's dumbstruck. He's just like, what? And he says he, he kind of has this kind of vision thing. He doesn't know what it was, but he's, he looks up, and there's like kind of pocket. It's like a summer day. There's pocket clouds everywhere, big, big, right? And he says the clouds to him looked like big, fat honeycombs, just dripping with honey, like all over the valley, all over the valley, honey's just just drip full, abundant, dripping on everyone, right? It's like raining all over everyone. Honey is getting on everyone. And he had this sense of God saying, man, don't beg me to pour out what I'm already pouring out. He had this sense God saying, I've given everything to you. I've given everything to you. And he said the weird part of this vision was that some people loved it. In the valley, people, some people, oh, yeah, they're eating it and they're sharing it with people. And some people loved it. And he said, other people, they're get out, get out, sticky, right? Get, oh, get it up. They were annoyed. They hated it. They were trying to get umbrellas and get under places. And dude, God is pouring out his love on you right now. Right now, he's pouring it out. His voice is alive, his power is given. The question is, do you want it? Do you think you need it? Is it some, or can you do this whole Christian thing on your own steam? Do you think you can do it without the help? I hope you're seeing that we don't live our Christian lives because of something we do. We don't live out of obedience and worship and surrender because it's up to us. We live out of obedience and worship and surrender because something that's been done to us. That's salvation. It's revealed. It's the Holy Spirit giving you something you cannot give yourself. And salvation doesn't exist outside of that, guys. You can't do it. It's impossible. You ever try to, I mean, <laughs> I barely love the people in my own house, much less my enemies. That's supernatural. That's not natural love. You can't do that on your own strength, guys. You need a stronger power. I mean, we can make it look really good on the outside, especially me, right? I grew up in church. I know all, I can raise my hands at the right time. I know the Christian lingo. We can make it look really good on the outside, but in your heart where no one can see, how's your level of obedience? What about your thought life? What about in the areas of unforgiveness and bitterness and lust and gossip? Dude, you have no shot at walking out in obedience before God without the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you sense that? I hope you do. I hope you have a sense today of, I hope I've made you needy. I hope over the course, we're not done with this series. We're going to keep digging into it until you're tired of it. But I hope over the course of this series, so I break some of you, right? Of course, 
over the course of over the course of this series, you have sensed a sense of neediness inside of you that may cause you, maybe not today, maybe not next month or next year, but maybe at some point to get on your knees before God and say, I can't do it on my own. Like, fill me, God. Help me. I hope that you have a sense today, right now, of neediness before God because I have good news for you. God answers the cries of the needy. Dude, he rushes to the humble in heart. He will not despise a broken and contrite heart and longs. Dude, the picture you get in the Bible is that he delights. God himself delights to give of you, to give to you of his divine nature, his power, his strength, his spirit. If you have positioned your heart and mind in a way in which um, the expression of your faith um, is always you pouring out, you giving, you sacrificing, right? It's possible you've got the cart before the horse and you're trying to carry all the weight yourself. And today I think the Holy Spirit wants you to see it's Jesus that was poured out. It's Jesus who gave, and it's Jesus who today is offering to pour himself out on you right now. New life, new strength. Will you open your mind and heart up to this possibility? I think there are others of us who will remain on the sidelines because you're afraid of emotions or you don't want to look like a fool or whatever it is. But I hope uh, you are seeing, if you intend to have a biblical Christianity, it is one built on a living, experiential encounter with the Holy Spirit. Read the New Testament and prove me wrong. I hope you're seeing that. Let's stand and pray.